0: You are tuned into The Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Welcome to The Dr. Tina Show. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Pran Yoganathan. Dr. Yoganathan is a gastroenterologist and a hepatologist in Sydney, Australia. I came upon his Instagram account several months ago and I've just been mind blown. This man understands so much about animal behaviorism, evolution, nutrition, strength training, philosophy, and so much more. And I am honored to have him on the show today. I think you're going to love him as much as I do. Well I know I've talked about the ideas of metabolic health and strength training before. I don't think you've heard it like this. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's jump in. Dr. Pran Yoga Nathan, I'm so excited to have you here finally. I've been trying to get you on for ages and you have had some uh, you I think your house flooded last time, so we finally get you on. I'm honored to have you here from across the world. Well, I am so excited. Would you quickly introduce the yourself to the audience, let them know who you are and what you're about because I found you on social media and I just mind blown. You're you're probably my favorite account hands down and uh you're a wealth of knowledge. So not only what you do, but like, how did you acquire this wealth of knowledge?
1: I appreciate that, Tina. That means a lot. Um, I'm a gastroenterologist and a hepatologist by trade. It's a mouthful, but fundamentally what that means is that we specialize in diseases of the digestive tract, um, you know, and um, hepatology is a Sort of a subspecialty within gastroenterology, which is the um, study of the liver or diseases of the liver. So um, that's a um, that's a subspecialty of internal medicine. Um, we tend to do a lot of procedures in terms of endoscopies and colonoscopies and procedures called ERCP. It's, the field has become a lot more advanced in that from that perspective. Um, from from. In, in terms of how we are kind of ending up linking and connecting is is my interest in, in nutrition and lifestyle in in terms of how it intersects with um, uh, chronic illness and human disease um, and and I think I've always been interested in that. It, um, medical school was an interesting place because we, we were taught that so much of uh, modern illness was lifestyle related, but we weren't really taught about lifestyle changes as doctors, and I've always found that a little bit of a paradox. Um, we're very good with uh, treating from a therapeutic perspective in terms of medications and surgeries and so forth, but very little attention paid to lifestyle. So in the last few years, as I've become a lot more comfortable in my skin as a doctor, I think I've gravitated to that mode of practicing and um, and hence why we're sitting here talking today.
0: Yeah. So I have to tell you the truth. It's actually your post about animal behaviorism and more of that zoology slant that you started throwing into your Instagram that caught me because my background is, uh, well, pretty deep in zoology and animal behaviorism. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And I pivoted. I, I wanted to be a doctor my whole life, but then I, of course, my passion was in animals. And I think that there's a lot of overlap and a lot we can learn from the way that they behave. And I feel strongly that humans' separation... And, and I don't know what it is, and it's interesting because we're going to talk a lot about eating protein, but our separation from nature and from animals in particular, I think, is going to be our downfall as a species. I think we're symbiotically related and intimate—you know, intimately tied into animals, and we talk a lot about the earth, and we talk a lot about resources, but very often people don't really talk about animals, and you seem to tie that all together really beautifully along with Nutrition. We're, I think we're very like minded in that, and the deadlifting part. You got me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that was it. <laughs> we, we, we are. We are connected in that regard. Like, it was very interesting, Tina, because I uh, spent a lot of my life in in, uh, in in Africa, basically, in in villages. My dad was a. Uh, my father was a village dentist in, in a place called Zimbabwe, and we lived in a a small um, town called Bindura. Um, town slash village very small Um, and uh, you know we were very closely connected with nature and you know you'd often see baboons and things like that come out and sit in their groups and I just even as a kid I was just it just really struck me how much like us they looked and behaved and 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 um, a lot of the mannerisms and so forth and and I was always a bit of a weird kid Uh, I, I remember sort of wandering around with encyclopedias and stuff. And I love reading that stuff. So at a very early age, I was exposed to science, zoology, um, evolution, the theory of evolution um, or the fact of evolution. And um, I think that's always stuck with me, even as I went through my medical degree. And as uh, as I've become more mature, as I said, in my practice, I'm just more comfortable linking all that up. Um, And it's interesting, so many um, medical doctors out there that, that, just have a really poor understanding of evolution and, and potentially whether, whether human disease or modern human disease is fundamentally us living outside of what we evolved to do as, as a species of animal. We also tend to gravitate, I think, as human beings uh, towards a very egocentric model of the world. We're told that when we're, when we're children, we've got this egocentric world and then we grow out of it and we become less egocentric. But the reality is I don't think we ever grow out of it. I think we, we truly believe that as a species, maybe maybe not as individuals, but as a species of the world, um, kind of or the universe kind of revolves around us. But that's not the case. I also witnessed in Africa... Um, and Asia, where, where I've spent long parts of my life, that life was also very, very cheap. You saw people at a very young age losing their lives because of drinking contaminated water and, and, and things like that. And when when we were in Africa in the 90s, uh, HIV and AIDS was becoming a major problem. I just watched people die left, right and centre and I thought to myself, like, really... Uh, you know there is so much about the world that's cruel and 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 beautiful at the same time but certainly uh, taking an egocentric perspective on the universe is a a really really big problem which i think the majority of the world suffers from we are fundamentally a species of animal and we are always going to be intimately tied to nature but so much so much uh, uh, so many of us are disconnected from it and that fundamentally is the issue
0: i agree completely i think that's I think that's why we're in this pickle right now, currently with the pandemic and the groupthink. It it goes very much back to our animal behaviorism instincts and how we are just. I always say we're just fancy mammals with opposable thumbs. Yep. You know, and people uh, they want to put things in boxes. Nice humans want to put things in tidy little boxes that they think they have control over.
1: Yeah, and it's absolute, just simply not true, right? Hundred percent, that's right. We've got no control. We're we're sort of hurtling through this universe with very little control over um, over our lives and uh, the uh, the course of time, for that, for that matter. You know.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about it. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this. Early on in the pandemic, I knew quickly that we were in trouble as a species because the the fear conditioning was so strong from the onset. And I knew within weeks, and we have, you know, there's studies going back looking at the KGB, uh, that it only takes a few weeks to really hijack the amygdala and limbic system of a human brain with fear and get that chronic dopamine kind of hit system going. What do you make of all that? Because I knew early, I knew within a month, I was like, ah, this is going to go on a long time because of what is I just seen transpire. I, can you speak on that?
1: yeah um I must admit when I saw the initial stuff emerge out of china i I, I was a bit naive and believing that it would all be contained and and so forth and I must admit, like looking at the initial images that were coming out i was, I, was, I was terrified for my elderly parents and and my family in the sense that you know you 've seen people dropping on the streets and so forth. but now, in retrospect, you realize that this was all some form of sick, perverse propaganda, and why the Western media propagated it on um, I'm very, um, I'm very surprised by that. We know, we know I'm not making light of COVID as a disease. We know that it's proven fatal across the world to many people, many elderly, many metabolically unwell, and some some well people even. So this is a, this was a real um, uh, pandemic. But but the initial stages of it certainly to me looking at looking on in retrospect. Um, it, it just didn't make sense, and I realise now that, that, that there was something uh, perverse happening, and I still haven't quite uh, figured it out. To be quite honest, Tina, uh, but the more I think about it, the more I realise that there are forces at play here that we probably can't um, can't comprehend, and I don't think most of the world wants to comprehend it because it's a it would be a very very uncomfortable truth uh, for them. But um, yeah, it's as things have. Um, as things have progressed and as things have gone on, I think people are starting to get a clearer picture of uh, what this virus is about. And, um, you you know, I'm glad that internationally and and certainly here in Australia, we're sort of slowly moving out of it and coming out of a lot of the restrictions and so forth. So uh, I hope society can kick on and, and recover.
0: I hope so too. Yeah, I mean, I was very cautious at first as well. I was very concerned for my parents as well. It, it just—I began to realize pretty pretty early on that I was seeing behavior that was um, irrational coming out of very smart people, and that's really what yeah. threw me off. I was like, it, it wasn't even so much as what's at play here, because it it smelled off from the get-go to me. But I think that people—I think that humans, it, especially the ones who are more detached from nature, bringing it back to that—I think that humans don't want to see the evil in the world. They probably have not seen what you've seen. I have not seen what you've seen as far as third world countries, people dying readily from lack of clean water. You know, we have first world problems over here. But I think that humans almost don't want to admit that something sinister, that that other humans could potentially be evil and sinister in their intentions and that it would happen on a level to which I believe it has.
1: What do you yeah, think about uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, I think the war profiteering that we've seen from some of the pharmaceutical companies has been obscene. Um, you know, absolutely obscene. You know, we've got a taxpayer-funded research that was subsequently monetized, and, and um, uh, you know, CEOs of some of these companies like Pfizer or Moderna being paid billions. You know, we're, we're talking. Huge, huge bonuses and, and, and shareholders being made wealthy and, and a massive wealth transfer that occurred, um, during the pandemic. It's really left a bad taste in, 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 in my mouth. I mean, I'm, I'm all for capitalism, as you know, and, and free markets and so forth. But this was, um, this was fundamentally war profiteering. And, uh, and again, driven by mandates, we were, we were, you know, this was a product that was mandated upon the population. And um, it, it 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 just, you know, looking on again, in retrospect, the hindsight's a great thing. Um, you wonder whether some of these politicians are reflecting on what's happened. Um, I'm not too hopeful, though, because there's just a lot of lack of common sense uh, through this whole process, uh, certainly the way I've seen it anyway.
0: Absolutely. That brings me to my next question. It was very clear to me early on from studies coming out of China that diabetics were getting hit hard and that metabolic health was going to be crucial to get through this. I could see that easily from the beginning. I knew that, though. You and I, docs like you and I knew that a decade ago, right? Like, this isn't anything or further. Like, my mentor was talking gosh, in the early 90s, there was no name for the diet. There was no paleo diet or carnivore diet back then. It was just he avoided grains and carbohydrates. He ate fruit and meat and other whole foods. He uh, always encouraged me to strength train, particularly the big muscles and pretty much forego cardio. He was This was back in the 90s when everybody was a cardio bunny and he was like, meh, cardio, just lift weights, you'll be fine get adequate sun, sleep. I mean, he was a naturopathic physician, so it was very much you know standard. I was shocked at the medical community's response, and maybe not so much from the allopathic community, but I really was shocked from the functional medicine and supposedly holistic community's response to this because it seemed like a pretty keen idea to... I mean, regardless of where you stand on vaccines, that's all irrelevant to me. Why not help everybody get more metabolically sound so that they can Um, deal with the infectious process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you why, Tina. Come and and take a walk with me through a hospital um, here in Australia, for example, and I'll I'll, I'll point out the physicians to you and and you'll realize very quickly that that the system and and the doctors that are supposed to be kind of perpetuating health, these people are fundamentally broken and metabolically unhealthy themselves. Um, you know, and so if you don't know how what, what health is, or in inverted commas, what metabolic health is, that can be very strictly defined. There's pillars to metabolic health. How can you kind of teach your patients how to achieve it? So, very quickly, I think we just gravitated towards a drug centric approach because all of the world, vast majority of the world, is metabolically unhealthy. Um, we're not just talking America, America gets singled out, but America's. Um, greatest export was their diet, and 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 uh, they've exported it uh, along with all the all the problems that that, that 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 standard Western diet brings. And so, vast majority of the East is also metabolically healthy, and 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 in, here in Australia we've got sixty to seventy percent of doctors that are overweight or obese. So it's like. Or how are these people going to emphasize metabolic health when they themselves can't define it? You, you can pull up 90% of doctors and ask them to define what metabolic health is. They wouldn't be able to do it.
0: That's a very good point. That's mm-hmm. a very good point. Let's, let's talk about your, your work a little bit because I had no idea that you were a GI doc. This is very exciting. <laughs> it's, this is, I swear I found your account and I was like... This is so freaking good. Every single day, there's a different post. Sometimes we're, we're, you're talking a little bit of flavor of stoicism. Sometimes you're talking philosophy. Sometimes you're talking, you know, evolution, nutrition, strength training. And to me, all that works together in my head, too. And I have honestly never met somebody who talks about that stuff so readily. And it, it it all, I can tell that's how a bit about how your brain works. Now I, to find out you, you're a GI and liver doc. So, Tell the audience what fatty liver is and how that relates to what we're talking about here with metabolic health.
1: Okay. So um, fatty liver disease, it was a relatively rare phenomenon 30 to 40 years ago, Okay, but became so commonplace now that radiologists, these guys that do the ultrasound and CTs, when they see fatty liver, they no longer report it because like, well, everyone's got it. Okay. But fatty liver disease or non alcoholic fatty liver disease was a label for it, um, is fundamentally a misnomer. What it is, the new definition is metabolic syndrome-associated fatty liver disease. This is literally a, a, a definition changed by some of the highest bodies in liver disease, okay, metabolic-associated liver disease. In fact, the guy who coined it as a Professor Jacob George here in Sydney, Australia, Westmead Hospital, we trained under him as junior doctors, very brilliant, brilliant man. So the liver is exposed to the gut. I mean, it fundamentally drains energy from the gut. And if your diet's energy rich, um, uh, the liver is a storage spot for for uh, the fat. So you cannot separate fatty liver disease from metabolic syndrome because they're both one and the same. Um, we know that metabolic syndrome involves visceral adiposity. This is where you pack visceral fat uh, or fat in the inside of your abdomen around your organ systems and so forth. And that fatty liver disease is fundamentally an offshoot of that. It's these organs get packed out with fat fat Um, And I don't think we can separate it out from metabolic syndrome because you look at the muscle of someone with metabolic syndrome, it's infiltrated with triglyceride. It's infiltrated with fat. It's the same with the liver and any other organ system, heart, Lungs—it's like it, it, it permeates everywhere, and that's the problem with the modern medical um, system or the allopathic system. It, it wants to—it wants to classify everything into an organ system. You've got a neurologist that deals with the brain, you've got a liver doctor that deals with the liver, you've got a diabetes doctor that deals with diabetes. But really, all, the entire system works in concert um, to to provide a healthy or a diseased state. So fatty liver disease is exactly that it's 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 metabolic syndrome in evolution fundamentally.
0: And when we see fatty liver early on at least what I have seen clinically it's often the harbinger it it, it may show up a little bit earlier I'll start start to see subtle elevations on liver enzymes I would always order uh, a liver ultrasound for patients and if I suspected it and they they didn't understand why they needed it often they'd come in with their lab results from other physicians and say yeah my doctor said I have a touch of fatty liver but it's nothing to worry about yeah. which you know just blew my mind and I was I would always think that's probably because your doctor has fatty liver too <laughs> uh-huh, it's been normalized it, and I watched 100%. it become normalized throughout my career which started in you know 2008 is when I first became licensed and I just watched the advent of fatty liver just become the norm to the point where i was just telling mike Mutzel this earlier i ran thousands and thousands of labs on people looking for at their overall metabolic health and i rarely came across somebody who was metabolically sound it was not it's not the norm absolutely Do you find
1: that? Uh, uh, absolutely you, you, you know one of the most important laboratory parameters to order including liver function tests um, in fatty liver disease, in fact, serum triglyceride, do a serum fasting triglyceride, pounds of peanuts. It, it, this is always elevated in, in people and you go, well, what's a normal triglyceride? They say the cutoffs too, right? But when you get yourself pretty healthy or optimal, you'll find that serum triglyceride generally drops to about, um, you know, 0.5, 0.6, under 1. Um, I think is ideal. I don't know what the lab values are. It might be a little bit different over in um, over in the states, but um, hypertriglycidemia is always associated with fatty liver disease, in my experience. Um, so, and hypertriglycidemia, to me is fundamentally a diet that is um, energy excess. Uh, or or someone who's losing a lot of muscle, essentially you've got nowhere to put the the triglyceride to the burn or store the triglyceride. So, um, I mean, if you wanted to apply that whole calorie in calorie out model, which I don't do um, hypertriglycemia generally is um, caloric excess in the, in in the setting of um, um, poor calories out.
0: Right. It's a 150 is my cutoff functionally. That's where I start to ring the bell, at least in our parameters. And the rule that I always have is when less total cholesterol and triglycerides start to match, we have a problem. That's oh, kind yeah. of the, oh, that's when oh, I start yeah. ringing the bell for the patient. And I I can't tell you how many physicians have come to see me, dentists, other health practitioners, and I often found it in your middle aged doctor who liked to drink. Yep, honestly, yep. that was <laughs> usually they they like their wine. You know, it was yeah. it was it was subtle. It was never heavy, but it, you know, stressful job. And they would like their wine on the weekends. They were generally runners or cyclists that did not yeah. lift weights. And yeah. they would come in, and that would be one of the first things I would see. Is I, I maybe would run sort of a, a just a thin panel on them. I, I wasn't diving into the serum insulin yet. I was just trying to you know, t- you kind of got to ease people into this sometimes without hitting them with the oh by the way you have pre diabetes, and that was always my alarm was, hey, your trigs are starting to match your total cholesterol. This is a problem. You're getting fatty liver. And they would argue with me incessantly about it and get mad. And I'm like, dude, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't make up the rules. I'm sorry you didn't learn this or pay attention to it in school. But that's indeed what's happening.
1: Hundred percent. And triglycerides are often ignored. You 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 know, the medical world is obsessed with the LDL cholesterol, which I mean, there's nuances to LDL, and I'm not saying it's not important. It's very important, especially when you break it down into its sub-fractions. But the things that are clearly defined by or, or metabolic syndrome is clearly defined by is insulin resistance, visceral adiposity, right? Um, you've got hypertension or vascular dysfunction, and the other two remaining tenants of metabolic health are HDL and LD um, and and, and triglyceride and you've got doctors completely ignoring triglyceride, it's like oh it's not an important parameter but it's one of the most important parameters and I think the HDL triglyceride ratio is critical in determining um, your propensity to atherogenic um, um, deposition so I I, I think like the definitions are clear in medical school, We're, we're taught it But the emphasis is on LDL because LDL can be medicated, right? And LDL can be lowered with statin therapy. And so this is the problem. We've got no way to actually safely lower triglyceride. The trials have been really poor from a pharmaceutical perspective. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the the way to lower triglyceride is to build up muscle and stop eating the excess energy and ethanol we know directly converts to triglyceride and same thing with um uh, same thing with fructose in excess um if you're eating a lot of commercially uh, produced fructose and we know a lot of the chocolates and sugar sweetened beverages and so forth are very very rich in commercial fructose which is different of course to the fructose found in fruits because that's locked in a natural matrix um you've got a problem um you know and and you know, historically, the way alcohol worked is you know, animals or early humans would have picked up rotting fruit underneath trees, eaten it, they would have gotten a bit of kick out of it through the alcohol, stored the alcohol as the triglyceride, and then utilized that triglyceride at some point later on um, through the amount of fasting and exercise that they would have done. So it served an evolutionary purpose. But like everything, you know, humans gained control of it. That was a process. Uh, of fermentation that we had no control over we were early humans you know Um, but we later learned to control fermentation and so we've got commercially available alcohol now and we've got a big drinking culture here in australia Um, i think it's similar in the states as well um, that if you're out with people you've got to drink and you're not a man if you don't drink beer here in australia it's like you know, you can't go in and order a champagne as a guy, you get laughed at, um, you know, so it's a big, big drinking culture that we've got here in Australia and I think that's, uh, that's problematic.
0: This episode of the Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. My number one selling product is easily relaxed Tonic. What is relaxed Tonic? Relax Tonic is an innovative powdered drink mix that reminds me a whole lot of the cherry flavored Kool-Aid I drank as a kid. Only this Kool-Aid won't brainwash you and might actually help you make better decisions. It contains a blend of ingredients that promotes a relaxed mood by supporting the body's natural neurotransmitter balance and neuronal stabilization. It contains the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, supports hormonal balance, healthy blood pressure levels already within normal range, and healthy glucose metabolism. Relaxed Tonic aims to promote a calm, relaxed, well-balanced emotional and physiologic state. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners for the Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Relax Tonic by using the code RELAX10 in all capital letters over inside my store at store.drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A. Again, head to store.drtina.com and be sure to use code RELAX10 for 10% off. Yeah, the the quickest way I've seen to get out of that that fatty liver scenario was by telling patients to decrease refined carbohydrates, quit drinking alcohol and start lifting weights. And it was like that. I mean, yeah. it, it would turn it around every time. And the, you know, you know as well as I do, that's not always uh, easy to expect them to be compliant with. Sure. <laughs> we can try, but it's such a simple solution and it's always made so much sense to me. And when, whenever I saw fatty liver, I would say, you know, just start lifting weights. It'll that's it'll burn up the fat in your liver first. It'll be gone. Give me three months of that. We're going to see dramatic changes on your labs, especially if you decrease or discontinue the alcohol. And the pushback was, it, it couldn't be that simple. They wanted a pill, you know, it, yep. it had to be something and it was a it was a circular thing i would go around women would be more responsive to it than men and i maybe maybe that's part of the uh, maybe just telling a maybe a woman telling a man to strength train i don't know what's your luck with telling patients to strength train
1: um yeah some will take it up i mean tina what i've realized is we we we're a lazy species of primate right and uh, yeah. in fact in, in fact all primates are, if given adequate energy they won't travel long distances Um, we're we're kind of by design or by evolution um, made so that we can conserve energy. So long periods of rest and and sitting around the fire or whatever it is, just kind of uh, relaxing. So most of us still carry uh, vestiges of of, of that hunter-gatherer model where, yes, we had to work to gain our energy or food, but if given the opportunity, we would be lazy uh, we're a lazy species. And I think there are some amongst us in the population that are just compelled to move, right? And I, I'm, I'm one of them, luckily, I'm, I'm one of them. I've been strength training since I was 15 or 16 years of age. I've had periods of little periods of breaks and so forth, you know, when the kids came and, 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 and that. But um, to tell someone who's 60 years of age to start strength training when they've never done it before in their life it's it must be a shock to them right the thought of walking into a gym with all these fit people around you um you know who clearly know what they're doing and you're there kind of out of your depth or out of your element and i see these people at the gym all the time and i I actually genuinely my heart goes out to them um, because without a good coach in that sort of situation you'd struggle you really would struggle to pick it up so I think um, I've always felt a good coach is critical. Um, but again, you know, there's cost barriers and, and, and so forth that people might have in, in accessing these sort of things. So there's many factors that go into it. But, but I think people are genuinely intimidated to, to start weight training. It sounds, um, it sounds daunting for people that have never done it before. I, I, I guess for people that have always moved, always done it, well, it's, it's just muscle memory. You pick it up and you, you do it. It's just your routine.
0: I didn't start till I was 40 and it was daunting and I did have a coach and I do realize I had the privilege of being able to afford a coach. I worked, it's funny though, I worked my ass off. I, I really was not in a good place financially when I hired my coach. I was not in the best place and I was a single mom and I was just building out my practice. And I remember a boyfriend saying, cause I was going through a tough month or two because of we had an ice storm and patients weren't able to show up and things were getting a little thin and he said, well, just cancel your coach. And I looked at him like, are you crazy? And I said, I go to work and bust my ass so that I can afford my coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't absolutely. have nails. I don't have fancy purses. I had a beater of a car that kept breaking down at the time, but I was damned if I was going to give up my coach because that to me is health insurance. Like that, yeah, that, that That was everything to get me out of my chronic sickness and my chronic autoimmune kind of downward spiral. So I really value the muscle on my body and it's a, it's it was costly to build for me, but I, I, I understand what you're saying too, though. I think that there are, is access in, in different capacities. There's group training. There's online programs. I'm with you, though, as somebody who treated a lot of orthopedic conditions, predominantly musculoskeletal medicine. I saw a lot of injuries happen from people who didn't know what they were doing. So I'm a big fan. We have silver sneakers here in the US where elderly folks get that with most health insurance premiums will give them free access to a silver sneakers club at the gym and they can go around. And it's, you know, it's not a lot of free weights. I think maybe it's evolving. It's usually the machines, but Mm -hmm. it's fun to watch. And there's a group of old guys that used to go to my gym. Three of them, I'd see the the one guy would come in in a walker, but he would Mm -hmm. still lift. And it was so inspiring to see. So, it takes all types but I yeah I mean if I could if I could get everybody listening to embark on one thing I would encourage them to find a way to learn how to strength train safely because I think it's you can't outlift your diet but man I have seen some I'll tell you this when I was doing regenerative injection therapies it's contingent on somebody's ability to heal so however healthy and vital they are is how they're going to respond if they're malnourished, it's going to be less. If they're un- under-muscled, it's going to be less. But I, I was always looking for one determining factor, like what's the one across the board, the one thing that I could count on telling a patient, you're going to do well, and it was those who were well-muscled. Mm. Those who had good muscle mass, even if they were guzzling Mountain Dew, they would always heal really beautifully after I treated them versus, say, someone who was completely you know, deconditioned and eating perfectly. The, the, the folks with muscles just, it was beautiful like that. So that was what got me. That's what really got me into strength training. I was in practice for a few years and I was like, all these people with muscle are doing really well with my therapies and my treatments. I should probably start strength training. <laughs> that should probably be top of my list.
1: Absolutely, I think there are myokines and muscles that that control cytokines and yeah, muscles like um, I think uh, I think it was Gabrielle Leon, uh, one of the doctors up there in, in America, and she said it's like a suit of armor, and and I agree with that. So I think that's very eloquently put. It's it's fundamentally your suit of armor that's protecting you through through this journey of life, where um, you know um, where you're met with infection, you're met with. Environmental toxins you're met with um, this terrible food environment we've got. So strength training is critical, and I've seen people on on vegan diets thrive even without um, um, without um, sort of testosterone supplementation or, or whatnot. I've seen them naturally do it. I mean, of course, they use powders and supplements and so forth, but it just shows you resistance training can overcome even a very very restrictive diet like a like a plant based diet. Some can thrive on it, and I acknowledge that. So, um, yeah, resistance training is key and I think it should be non-negotiable, but as I said, like getting people to do it in my clinical experience has been, it's been very difficult. People don't take it seriously in their, um, their concept or their definition of exercise is a 45 minute walk, um, gentle stroll, which we know probably does absolutely, you know, bugger all if you're already metabolically deconditioned.
0: Right. And that's the hard part because I do think that the daily walk is a critical piece of the puzzle, especially post meal. It's yeah. important to if you if you've got metabolic issues, it's really important to go for a walk after you eat, especially if you eat a carbohydrate rich meal. Although I'm a big fan of earning your carbs, you know, I, yeah. I, I eat carbs heavier on the days that I lift. And I don't have the perfect body and I'm not going for the... I used to have the perfect body and it was really hard to come by. (laughs) It was was really challenging to keep that little belly pooch off and all of that. And I'm 48. I just want to feel good. I want to be pain-free. I want to sleep well. I want to have good energy. I want to have a good libido. I want to be able to do all the things that I want to do when I want to do them and not be hung up because I have struggled with chronic pain and injuries. And I've been at that dark, dark, low place where I'm like, am I going to be able to walk again, you know, cause my hip was so messed up. So I get it, but I, th- I think that, uh, people want to substitute and I'm like, no, you know, great. If you want to do cardio, cool. If you want to do yoga, cool. If you want to do, I love Pilates. I think it's really got a lot of utility, but I mean, it, man, without my reformer, I think my spine would be a mess. You know, it's one, mm. it's the one tool I have to get myself out of chronic pain, but that those are all sort of like frosting on the cupcake the strength training is the core. You have to earn the running. You have to earn the other things, in my opinion. And the walking is just like breathing air and drinking water. It's an expectation of being a human being. That's kind absolutely. of how I share it with
1: my patients. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think strength training, what I tend to tell my patients is strength train at least three to four times a week. Hit the big muscle groups like your posterior chain and quads and, and, and back and pecs. Um, and then try and walk. Four to five times a week, at least ten thousand steps, eight to ten thousand steps, within best of your capacity, and and just do a high protein diet. You give them all the tools, you you give them all of that, but to get people to actually uh, go through with it, it, it um, it's it's challenging. So there's a lot of barriers to it, and I think for a lot of people, it's um, it's mental.
0: For sure, I wonder, I wonder what the motivating factor is for most people. In my practice, I found that pain and vanity were two very good motivating factors for people. But I've seen more and more as I've gotten older, and especially through this pandemic, that vanity seems to no longer be a very motivating factor for people. It, it was early on in my practice, and that wasn't that long ago, but it seems to kind of gone by the wayside with this health at every size movement where it's like, oh, you can be, you know, heavy set and still be healthy is the prevailing theme. What do you think about that? Because I really, I, I, I love the idea of body positivity, love yourself at every size, but we also have to get real and realize, I think a lot of young people have homeostasis working in their favor so they can carry excess pounds and they can carry that subcutaneous fat just fine. But eventually that starts to shift towards more of the visceral fat picture, it becomes more pro-inflammatory. And as they hit their forties, that's when we start to see their labs derail. So how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of kind of downhill for most people from the mid thirties onwards. I think there's muscle loss, and I think uh, metabolic syndrome starts becoming more pronounced. With regards to the body positivity uh, movement, it's more of the sort of uh, ultra left wing wokism that that we're seeing now in the world. There's many examples of it, and I I'd put veganism and you know sort of this climate change um, and, and some of the other stuff, um, which we won't get into, it's probably too controversial, but I, I, I'd put in this whole body positivity thing uh, into that category as well. It's a problem because, you know, we know that being overweight and being obese is, as you've said, it is pro-arthrogenic, you're at increased risk of heart disease, strokes, a death from infection, diabetes, gout, I mean, the list goes on, blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, the list goes on you know bad outcomes from covid it's like what more do people need so how do we promote something that is we know detrimental to health as well just love yourself at that size i agree body to be positive about your body is important but as doctors as clinicians we've also got the right to tell people when potentially they're, they're harming themselves we've got to do that with with empathy. Um, we've got to be sensitive to all of that but at the same time remain factual um, and I've, I've always been like that with my patients and so, most of them I think appreciate it uh, but but there are a lot of instances where it's gone wrong I've had to deal with complaint letters and so forth and sometimes you reflect on and think is this really worth it um, the stress and so forth just being all gastroenterologist and and see a patient, label their gut symptoms as irritable bowel, and just do a colonoscopy, get paid for it, and and move on without the stress. But you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, practicing medicine in that way. I think I would struggle to sleep at night with that type of practice. I'd probably earn more and and have less headache um, approaching gastroenterology in that way. But but I just wouldn't philosophically and fundamentally. I just I, I think I would let myself down and um, struggle to keep. Invigorated about coming to work every day. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm all for body positivity, but I'm also going to point out if your lab parameters and potentially your measurements—blood pressure, waist circumference, so forth—point out that that potentially your metabolic health is declining. Up, um, I think facts are important.
0: Facts are important. I tried to share the diagnostic criteria for metabolic syndrome, which is an international standard. Yeah. Regardless of which you know organization you're looking at who defined it. It's pretty pretty much across the board the same. It's and very standard. I can't tell you the amount of people who called me dangerous. They literally dropped in and said, you're dangerous. How dare you? I mean, I was attacked for it. And I was so confused. I'm like, this is not an opinion piece. This is a diagnostic criteria as a physician. This is what we're trained to understand. How, how on earth could this be construed as a, as a subjective emotion? You know, it was very odd to see how people reacted. I did a series of pieces about waist circumference. I think that was about the time I discovered your account. I was talking a lot about waist circumference and it alone, waist circumference alone is a pretty damn good diagnostic standard for, I mean, I'll take it as a vital sign, honestly. I'll Mm -hmm. I'll look at somebody and see how well muscled they are and I'll, I'll run their waist circumference. And if they've got high blood pressure to go along with it, I'm pretty sure they have metabolic syndrome and I'll run labs to concur. But they were so mad at me. People were so mad about it. And again, calling me dangerous. And every time I bring up metabolic health, I get accused of being dangerous. And this brings me back to something you just said, the headaches you're enduring. People get so angry when they are sort of shoved around from doctor to doctor, or sort of blown off, or given some sort of like mediocre care. But what they don't understand is that when doctors like yourself, I'm as a nature, I chose to become a naturopathic physician strictly so that I could say those things because mm. we are not beholden to the standard of care. We are beholden to best practices, but we don't have to kiss the American Medical Association's ass. So that is specifically why I became an ND. But Doctors like yourself really do come under a lot of scrutiny, investigations, complaint letters, all kinds of issues simply for speaking truth and maybe sharing objective data that isn't the standard narrative, much like we're seeing with COVID. And that's often why doctors will just sort of see you and brush you out of their clinic because it's too much sometimes. It's too much of a headache, it's too much effort. It's it's more than they want to deal with and definitely you know, more than they're getting paid. So that's what I want to share with the audience listening is it takes a gutsy doctor with a thick skin and a real heart for it to stand up and say no. And they expect us to behave that way, but then we see human beings as a whole right now sort of just folding to the narrative of COVID and masks and mandates and all of that, so it's like across the board, no matter what the profession, there's only a few brave ones.
1: Period. Yeah. right? yeah, absolutely. And I think I think people want to be led, um, and and part of having a social media presence and and doing podcasts and kind of being out there is that you s- slowly over time start eventually. Um, getting patients that gravitate to you because of your ethos and that's what's slowly occurring is that I'm seeing people that are already motivated that are kind of understanding that the, the, the current system's broken and they come from all over Sydney and you know Australia and, and from all sorts of suburbs they travel long distances and that's the kind of practice that, that I'm starting to uh, attract now and of course there's been a lot of because uh, we get referrals from general practice or primary care it's been a lot of primary care doctors that have said, look, we're not going to send patients to Pran anymore because we know how he approaches it. And I lost a lot of work that way and probably lost a lot of income. But as I said to you before, Tina, it, it just, I'm just happier. I'm just happier when, when I can practice this way. And um, I'd rather kind of sacrifice some income for, for that happiness and, and I think we're getting starting to get really good outcomes from, from the patients that can follow. And, and as I said, now we are starting to draw in people that are already, you know, they're, they're already convinced that they need to make the first step as, as opposed to me um, breaking my back during a consultation to prove to them that, hey, you need to make some changes. So um, it's it's getting better in that regard, which I'm pleased about.
0: I love it. And that is the beauty of social media. It's really a tool to be able to speak your truth and invite in and curate your practice or your business with the right kind of people who are of the same vibration okay i want to ask you a question though we we, you mentioned fatty infiltrate of the muscle and i want will you just quickly take us through what the general sequelae and what people can expect when they get diagnosed with fatty liver what does it specifically do to the liver and then what does it do to the muscle and why is that a problem
1: Okay. So when you diagnose with, with fatty liver, often it's based on liver biochemistry or liver function testing, uh, which is a blood test, of course, showing elevated transaminases, in particular the ALT and the AST. Often the ALT is the best marker. So then an ultrasound done and the ultrasonographer picks up fatty liver and the GP or the doctor will turn around and say, you've got fatty liver. You've got to eat less, move more, right? that, that, um, that rhetoric. And so the patient goes away confused, tries a, an 800 to 1200 calorie diet, which is basically carbohydrate based. They, they get very little satiety out of it, um, drop muscle because they're in a calorically restricted state with um, poor protein intake often. And people have got it into their heads that, that it's beef doing it or red meat doing it and we're gonna to have to limit all that. And so what do they gravitate towards? Refined carbohydrate, more fruit, um, grains, which we know are very low in protein, just low protein food. So they go away, drop three or four kilos and they're miserable as they're doing it. And a lot of that three or four kilos is muscle. They've lost muscle mass, right? And so, um, and they come back to the doctor and the doctor goes, well, you've seen some improvements but the fatty liver is still there and they go, bugger this, and they just go back to their their way of eating. Now they go back to their baseline calories with reduced muscle now so Mm -hmm. they pack on even more fat so the vicious cycle kind of continues um, and and that fundamentally is the cycle that we see, okay? Um, Fatty liver over time is a disaster because fat is inflammatory. Fat is a potent producer of something called interleukin-6 which drive something called crp c-reactive protein you can measure this in the serum of people you'll see that people that carry a lot of weight tend to have elevated levels of crp because they have higher levels of interleukin 6 now over time having fat in the liver is like drinking a couple Bottles of wine, uh, and some people are more genetically predisposed to getting inflammation uh, in response to the fat. Over time, it can lead to cirrhosis. In fact, they predict in the next twenty years it will overtake viral hepatitis and alcoholic hepatitis as the number one cause of end stage liver disease. Um, and we're going to see that in our lifetimes, Tina. We, we've got kids now that are five, six years old with fatty liver. That's a twenty—you know—by the time these kids are 25, 26 years old, that's a twenty-year exposure. To um, or 25-year exposure to fat in the liver and inflammation. We're going to start seeing cirrhotics at 20s and 30s um, requiring liver transplantation. And instead of fixing the environment that's doing it, all that's talked about now. And you go to these liver meetings and you sit around with other hepatologists or gastroenterologists who most of them are morbidly uh, you know, obese or overweight themselves which is, which is a real paradox and all they talk about is the new exciting drug that's coming on the market for fatty liver disease okay? and, and uh, it doesn't address the fundamental problem and I often point it out to them, I say, look, should we do this and I sort of get stared at blankly and often their response will be, oh, patients can't follow a diet, it's like they've written people off um, immediately and I think this speaks to the apathy within the medical system the allopathic system um, it, again, goes back to the fact that these people are so overworked, so hamstrung by massive mortgages and student loans and stuff they've got to pay off. They, they've got no time to to do health themselves. So how do you pass on health if you yourself don't have it? Um, there's a real culture shift required within the medical system. I've digressed a little bit on your Fatalibut uh, question, but but that's the general general cycle that we see people don't get better from fatty liver disease very few will do it yet it is as simple as dropping six kilograms of fat and the fatty liver disease will result some of sometimes within weeks um, yeah with weeks
0: the, lift weights and drop some fat
1: it's 100 100 yeah, cut the carbs exactly right. and
0: cut the booze and lift some weights and it and go for walks after your meals and it's like magic it works it's
1: it, it it does it's that simple um and um you yeah, know we've had really good results with some of our patients and it's just rapid and dramatic and and yet this cognitive dissonance you know the patient will go back to the general practitioner and say look at what i've achieved and the general practitioner will say brilliant what are you doing i'm eating more beef and lifting weights oh you can't do that you know so there's a significant cognitive dissonance that that we've got in the medical system and um I'm not sure how we're going to change that. The culture needs to shift internally uh, from the in, in, in the medical um, schools themselves.
0: So these folks are looking at cirrhosis, which basically means severe scarring up and death of the liver and liver transplants, or they're going to die. That's the, that's the sequelae that they that's what I try to explain to patients, and they just can't believe it. They're like, how could my doctor just blow this off and now you're telling me this? Right. And yeah. I'm not trying to scare yeah. them. I'm just like, this is what it looks like if you don't take me seriously. And it, like that's where we are in medicine. That's the mind boggling piece where something that's been completely normalized, like you said, they just they don't even report it. They just scan right over it unless I have them go look for it. And the end stage of that is what we just shared, which is horrific. And so it's it's a disaster, people. If you have fatty liver, which I would say 88% of Americans probably have some start to it or Mm. streaking in their liver, this is the real deal. This is why I beat this metabolic drum all the time and people are probably so sick of me saying it. And then they're like, what's the solution? What can we do? And I'm like, lift lift weights and eat meat. Lift weights and eat meat. (laughs) My mom was joking the other day because... I think for 20 years, that's what I've been saying to her every time she comes to me, my friend has this or so-and-so has, is dealing with this or so-and-so. And I'm like, mom, root cause, metabolic syndrome, lift weights, eat more meat. That's That's always the solution. And I think for, you know, she's getting, everyone's getting tired of hearing it, but it, it really is that simple.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It it is definitely like what we're seeing is not not particularly rocket science. It's evolutionarily consistent to what our bodies are designed to do and and eat uh, and the way we're supposed to nourish ourselves. But there's so many barriers to it. You know, like here in Australia, we've got our cancer council telling people that beef increases your risk of uh, colorectal cancer. So you've got people knocking off bowls of pasta at night, but avoiding the steak because um, they're worried it's going to cause bowel cancer. Meanwhile, their diabetes is rampant, you know, and you see them here in rooms and you say, well, look, your diabetes is pretty crap. Why don't you start eating more protein? Oh, well, I'm avoiding that because I don't want to develop bowel cancer, notwithstanding the fact that metabolic syndrome is probably the biggest risk factor for colorectal cancer. So we've got public health messaging that is against what doctors like you and me are trying to say. So it's like we're swimming up Upstream against the tide um, and uh, or going down some sort of white water um white waters without an aura, because it it really does you, you after a while you just realise there's so many barriers to care. And so um, I'm hopeful that with the advent of social media, the, the, the message kind of gets out, people start paying a bit more attention and a healthy mistrust of authority, I think is, is, is what's needed. Um, but, but most people want authority. They want to be led, as I said before. And, um, and these are all challenges.
0: Yeah. Well, COVID is a great example of the last two and a half years of, of that. Okay, quickly. And I, and then I'll let you go because I know you're a busy man. Some, Next, let's move into the fatty infiltrate of the muscle. What yep. does that look like and what is the problem with that?
1: Um, it's a problem. Um, Tina, so I think the best thing to do is take a animal like um, we, we hunt deer here in Australia. Take an animal like a uh, deer that's been out foraging in its natural environment. Um, and when you butcher the animal, there's just very little fat infiltration. It's an active animal, no exposure to grain. And then take a cow that is heavily grain-fed, right, and have a look at the muscle and how it's infiltrated with all the fat, which we as humans desire. We love fat, right? Um, because it's palatable Um, but is that a healthy animal i I think probably not Um, and that's what the human muscle looks like you can see it on mri i'll post some images on my social media today but the mri will show shrinking of the muscle fibers yet the overall uh, compartment of the quadricep or, or, or biceps or whatever remains the same but it's infiltrated with fat so people go i'm not losing muscle but not, not realizing that they are losing muscle but infiltrating that with fat. We know that muscle is denser than than fat, so it weighs something like three times more than fat. so people just slowly, gradually lose muscle, infiltrate, and replace it with fat. lose type two fibers, which are the rapidly active fibers, of course, as we age again lose metabolic activity it 's a vicious cycle, so really got to rage against the um, the ravages of time and, 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 and the only way to do that really is to maintain. A bioavailable source of protein, which in my opinion is animal source protein. In fact, the science would back it. Um, that's the most bioavailable for our gut to access. And and um, lift heavy things just to kind of keep the muscle active. I think too, too many people are obsessed with cardio and I think um, that's a mistake.
0: I agree. And if you look at those cross sections of those muscle, those those thighs, for instance, with the fatty infiltrate, you'll always see an increase in osteoporosis along with it. You'll see that bone loss is significant because that fat is inflammatory, as you mentioned, it's pro-inflammatory. So we've got a pro- pro-inflammatory Situation happening, and the muscles and the bones and the joints are all BFFs, much like the liver and gallbladder and gut, right? Like they all, what one's doing, they're all doing. And so, in my opinion, I truly believe that metabolic syndrome starts in the muscles. I think that the vicious cycle of that fatty infiltrate, then we get the inflammatory induced sarcopenia, and round and round and round it goes. And Those who have metabolic syndrome or diabetes have a much harder time building muscle because of that cycle. And so they're even, you know, they've got a bit of an uphill climb there initially. But as that metabolic syndrome starts to regulate and become more to healthy levels, that muscle will start to come on more readily. That fatty infiltrate will get burned up and used. And the bones will be much happier and healthier. So people don't get it. You know, they just take a pill for their bones and they, I guess there's no really pill for the muscle except for muscle pain, but we're missing the mark, like you said, in traditional allopathic medicine, there's just a huge hole and the root cause is like the big elephant in the room. That's not really not being addressed. So, absolutely. oh oh my gosh, I love every minute of this. I want to bring you back and talk about animals next time. Okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'd love to. I'd love to, Tina. And I think we've spent the hour talking about animals and that animal is a human being. (laughs) And uh, we, we, we should definitely try and reconnect with that concept that we are fundamentally a primate, a primate that learned to scavenge, that learned to hunt. Um, and then learned to farm and uh, maybe the farming aspect had advanced uh, it was definitely advantageous for us to build civilization but the compromise was our general health so I'm not saying that we go back to being hunter gatherers I'm not romanticizing their lives they've got very difficult lives and high infant mortality and whatnot but if we can replicate some aspects of their life um, I think we'd be a lot happier and healthier for it and, um, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to take a look at life through an evolutionary lens and, and we stop doing that.
0: I agree. I agree so much. You, you put it so elegantly. Okay. Where can everyone find you? Your Instagram is fabulous. Tell them where that is What what your handle is
1: yeah thanks uh, tina so i'm uh dr underscore pran underscore yoga nathan um on on instagram i'm Shadowban, so good luck finding me um <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll link it i'll make sure to link uh, it
1: thank you yeah so Shadowban, i'm not sure for what i think um um you know you, you, i'm just posting facts as far as i can see but um uh, and i'm also on twitter and and facebook with the same handle so um yeah look um it's just a good medium to get my message out and i try and post as regularly as possible.
0: Well, I do have a decent Australian following. So if anybody were interested in coming to see you, is that an option with your healthcare system?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in Sydney, Australia, and um, I tend not to do too many telehealth type appointments because it's difficult because you know, we need to do colonoscopies and physical examinations and so forth. So I prefer the face-to-face. But, yeah, absolutely, i will be happy to see people, especially people that are kind of motivated to make some positive changes in their life. And we've got a great infrastructure in our rooms with dietitians and, and exercise physiologists and, you know, movement specialists and so forth. So, yeah, more than happy to kind of help in that regard.
0: That's awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I'm so glad to finally meet you face to face. I know it's through a computer, but what an honor to finally speak with you and we will have you back on. We'll do a whole animal episode. Okay.
1: Would love to do that. It'd be a pleasure to come back on. and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at drtina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and drtina2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Gilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week.